Well, this is a, a full sermon today with a lot of ground to cover, and a lot of it feels sort of heavy and hard to preach, and maybe some of it heavy and hard to hear. Um, just maybe trigger warning or whatever, I will be talking some about politics today, and so those of you who get hives around that kind of thing, just feel free to head home or whatever. But um, I don't think I'm going to say anything too controversial. I think you'll agree, even if also challenge. But in the end, this sermon is a call for you and I to be full of hope and full of trust that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. He is faithful to his plans and his purposes, and we do not need to be anxious about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, we can present our very sincere requests and concerns to God. He is on the throne, he is in control, and we can trust him. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us that word of hope today, that our trust in you would be placed on a more sure and solid foundation, so that as we walk in a world that is uncertain and sometimes scary, a future that we don't know and that we can't control, Lord, we believe that you are, that you are Yahweh, the great I am, and that we can trust you. Amen. Amen. So turn with me to Judges chapter 10. We're going to be looking at Judges 10, 11, and 12 today. So there's a lot of ground to cover. This is just a quick overview of these three chapters. This is the story of Jephthah. Jephthah was a military leader in Israel. And at the beginning of, of his story, the people are being attacked by the Ammonites. These were people who were descendants of Lot, way back in the book of Genesis. And Jephthah is recruited by the people of Gilead to come and to be their leader. And in this story, Jephthah has quite a lot of military success. He wins a couple significant victories in chapter 11. But then Jephthah makes what he's kind of most famous for, which is this this rash vow that he makes to God. Before going into the battle with the Ammonites, he vows to God that whatever comes out of the door of his house to greet him when he comes home from victory, that he would sacrifice whatever that was as a burnt offering to God. God, if you give me this victory, whatever comes out of my house first, I will sacrifice that as a burnt offering. And the tragedy of this story, if you don't know, is who came out was his one and only daughter. His only child was the first to come out and to greet him. So we have in Judges 11 this heartbreaking dialogue between Jephthah and his daughter. And in the end of the story, it tells us that Jephthah does to his daughter as he vowed to do. It's a terrible story that exemplifies how far Israel has fallen. To this point where Jephthah, one of the leaders of Israel, someone that the people of Israel recruited to come be our leader, believes that the God of Israel would be pleased with a child sacrifice. Chapter 12 then finishes with Jephthah leading Israel into another civil war between Gilead and Ephraim. But I want to begin in Judges chapter 10. So that's a bit of an overview of Jephthah's story. But I want to begin by reading Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 16. Judges 10, 6 through 16. 
Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. We've heard that phrase quite a lot. They served the Baals and the Ashereths and the gods of Aram and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And then they got rid of the foreign gods among them, and they served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. So these verses set the scene of the story of Jephthah. And what we find out about Israel at this time is that they are now fully engaged with the religious practices of the Canaanites. They're not just worshiping a couple of their gods. They're worshiping all of their gods. There's a list of seven different nations here that the Israelites have given themselves over to their religious practices. Israel has given themselves over. They are no longer a distinct people in the land. Now, it's true that we see that they haven't completely forgotten their identity as Israel. They still remember Yahweh, the God of Israel. They do cry out to him and they ask him to save them. We're also going to see in the coming chapters that they remember some of their own history. They remember God's work of delivering them from Egypt. And there's also in this story some echoes of their memory of the law. They haven't forgotten everything. And they still call themselves Israel, but they aren't living in the way that God intended them to live. We don't see Israel worshiping Yahweh in any meaningful way. The people and the leaders have at best a faint understanding of Israel's history and of the law. They cry out to God when they're in trouble, but they don't seek his ways and his directions. They don't seek him for what they should do. They just do whatever they think is best. They are now sort of Israel in name only. Israel in name only. Israel is in an advanced case of syncretism. It's a big word, syncretism. The definition is a union or attempted fusion of different religions, cultures, or philosophies. Israel is in an advanced case of syncretism. The second thing that I want you to notice about this introduction in Judges chapter 10 is that the pattern of the way that God is responding to Israel has changed. You remember, we've looked at this a few different times. 
that Israel experiences peace and prosperity, and then they begin to become apathetic, and then they begin to worship other gods. They suffer the consequences of those things. They cry out to God, and then God sends a deliverer. But that pattern is broken here. God does not raise up a deliverer. At the end of uh, the reading here, it simply says that God could not bear Israel's misery any longer. Why doesn't God raise up a deliverer? It's, it's not completely clear. I think there may be a couple different reasons for this. It may be that God has sort of come to the end of his rope with them. And that part of Israel's discipline now is to suffer the full consequence of their sin. And another option that I'm going to tease out in a few minutes is that the people of Israel take matters into their own hands. And they find their own deliverer rather than waiting on God. And whatever the case, it's important to notice that the pattern that we have read up to this point has changed. God's chosen deliverer isn't given to Israel this time. And it has terrible consequences for Israel. It leads them eventually to civil war. So Israel is in this advanced case of syncretism. And as the people of Israel become more syncretistic, God's position in their minds and in their hearts, it's lowered to a lower place. God is no longer the king of the universe, the creator of all, the Lord of all nations. He's just one God among the others. Israel has lost their vision for who God is. He's just one God among these many others. Maybe he likes us the best, and maybe we can seek him out if we need some help. But they've lost their vision for their God as the one and only God. The God of the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Ammonites and Amorites, as well as the God of Israel. They've lost their vision. They've placed God in a, a lower place. And so I just want to name here two different results that happen when we put God in a lower place than he belongs. And first is we see that Israel lost the vision of who God's God is. And so in this story, they make God useful. They make God useful. Second, Israel loses confidence in God and they take matters into their own hands. Israel loses its vision of who God is, and so they make God useful. And Israel loses confidence in God and takes matters into their own hands. I want to talk first about Israel losing confidence in God. Listen to the very first book, or very first verse of the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord... Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? That's the very first verse in the entire book. That the people sought the Lord. They sought his direction. But this time, it doesn't seem like God's going to come to the rescue. He's not sending a deliverer. And so they take matters into their own hands. I'm going to read uh, Judges chapter 10, verse 17, through chapter 11, verse 6. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mitzpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. 
Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers, scoundrels, gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you are in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and we will be your head and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. The picture here we get of the people of Gilead is desperation. They're willing to literally follow anyone who will lead them. They chase down this black sheep brother who's leading a gang of thugs way off in a distant land. They're desperate for a leader. At the beginning of the book of Judges, this would have been an occasion for prayer. Judges 1.1, let's seek the Lord. Who should lead us? If someone is going to save us, we want it to be God's person. But they take matters into their own hand. They've lost confidence in God's provision for them. If someone is going to save us, we're going to have to do it ourselves. God isn't coming. He's not going to rescue us. Let's go find someone, anyone, who will help us conquer our enemies. The people of Israel have lost confidence in God. They've come to believe that they're not going to be rescued. They're going to have to do it themselves and that God can't be trusted. Secondly, the people of Israel have lost this vision of God as the king of the universe, and they make God useful. They make God useful. In chapter 11, there is this exchange between Jephthah and an Ammonite king. And in his negotiations with this Ammonite king, what he says to him, to the king is, King, you take the land that your god Chemosh has given to you, and we'll take the land that our god Yahweh has given to us. The interesting thing is that in Deuteronomy chapter 2, it says that God Yahweh gave the land to the Ammonites, not Chemosh. Jephthah has forgotten here who is really in control. And this lower view of God then causes Jephthah to make this particular kind of vow. He has come to believe that God's power is useful to him to get him what he wants. Just like all of the other gods around them. Your God, if you do what you're supposed to do, if you make the right kinds of sacrifices, then your God will come through for you. That's the kind of idea that Jephthah has about his God, the God of Israel. And so Jephthah believes that God's power is useful to him to get him what he wants. Friends, God is not useful. He's not useful. He's the king. We know that we have made God into an idol when we begin to see God as useful for us to gain other things. 
This is sort of the default position of the health and wealth gospel that you've maybe heard about before, that God is useful to us to help us gain prosperity and money and health. And if you make the right sacrifices, if you donate to the right televangelist, then you're going to get X, Y, or Z, whatever it is that you want. Here's another example. There was a wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills who dropped a pass at the end of an overtime game in 2010. And he went onto Twitter and he blamed God for it. He says this, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Okay, this wide receiver has a particular view of God. If I worship you, then you will then help me in this football game. And you've not come through for me. You've not been as useful as I thought that you were. These are a couple of obvious and extreme examples, the health and wealth gospel and this particular example with this wide receiver. But all of us can be in danger of making God useful to us. Friends, sometimes even in the way that we present the gospel to people makes God useful for us to gain something else. Like a bargain that we make with God, if we do this thing, if we say this particular prayer, prayer, if we repent from our sins, then God will save us and get us to where we want to go, which is heaven. But friends, the golden streets and the pearly gates are not the rewards of the gospel. They are the means to get us to the reward, which is God's presence. It is the open gate and the streets that lead to God himself. God, his presence, knowing him, being known by him, that is the end goal of the gospel. And he is the end, not the means to get there. He is the goal. He is not the one that we use to get our goals. God is not useful. All things are useful to us to worship God. Money, sex, power, authority, governments, marriage, children, all of these things are good things that God has given to us to point us to him, to lead us to him, and to use those things in order to worship and honor him. They are useful for our worship of him. We don't use him in order to gain whatever we want from those things. God can't be used to gain money or good sex or power or some other hope that we have. He is the end. He is the goal, and all things can be useful to find him. But he will not be put in a subordinate place of being useful so that we can gain something else. The wide receiver for the Buffalo Bills maybe thought that he had made some sort of arrangement with God. Jephthah thought that he had put God in that place by making a sacrifice to him that now God is obligated to act in some sort of way for me. But what we see in the outcome of Jephthah's story, in the outcome of his own personal life, and the outcome of his leadership for Israel, is tragedy and civil war. It's heartache as he has to sacrifice his daughter, and it's civil war between the people of Israel. Israel, because of their syncretism, because they have placed God on a lower level than where he belongs, they've lost confidence in God, and they take matters into their own hands, and they lose the vision that they were called into 
with the God of the universe, the king. And they make him useful in order to gain something else. One of my favorite theologians is a a man named Leslie Newbegin. And Leslie Newbegin um, actually wasn't a theologian first. He was a missionary. He was a missionary to India from the 1930s until the 1970s. Gone in India, to India during that entire time for 40 years. Catherine, you'd read this dude for a while. I think it would be helpful to you. Gone for 40 years. And he comes back to, India, uh, to England. And he, is, he has this profound realization as a missionary, as he's been trained with missionary eyes, to realize that Western culture was now a mission field. He said this in 1974. Almost 50 years ago. The West was and still is sending missionaries to other places to declare the gospel to other cultures. But what he saw is that the truth of the matter now is that the gospel needed a new hearing in Western culture. This is what he says, and this is an owie. If you want to know about water, don't ask a fish. Western Christians are unaware of the religious beliefs of their culture because they are swimming in it all of the time. They are too easily seduced by the myths of a Christian culture or of a neutral secular culture. Western culture, however, is neither Christian nor neutral. It is shaped by a false religious creed. The Western church is in an advanced case of syncretism. Now, there is a lot in this quote to unpack, but I just want to note a couple things. First is just to note that it's, it's a scary thought that we are very often unaware how much we are like the Canaanites. That we are fish swimming in water, and it's hard for us to be able to evaluate and understand the culture around us because we're living in it all of the time. It's the only thing that we really know. And we need help. We need help from others to help us to see the ways that we are swimming in a culture that's toxic to our faith. Certainly, first, we need help from the scriptures. God's word is the ultimate mirror that we must constantly return to, to hold up to our lives and to ask whether we are actually following Christ or whether we are just Christians in name only. But I also also want to suggest that we need the help of other Christians, especially Christians from other cultures. We need to be willing to listen to criticisms and questions from followers of Jesus who see things from a different perspective. This was one of the great gifts that Katie and I received by living for nine years in in Vancouver. The Christians there had questions for me about how Christians in America act and the decisions that Christians in America make. And the kind of positions that they hold. And that was a challenge to me as someone who grew up in this particular fishbowl to be challenged and to be listened to those criticisms and to recognize that there were issues that were important to them that weren't really important to me before. Canadian Christians got all kinds of problems too. (laughs) But to listen to them and to allow myself to be shaped by their own thoughts and criticisms 
of the way that we do church, the way that we do Christian life here in America was an important part of um, our time there. Friends, we have the great gift of Pastor Simps, who is here to do some of this for us. And his perspective over and over again, every single week, as a person who grew up in a completely different culture, challenges my individualism, challenges the way that I don't see the way that the spiritual world works around me, but he's able to see that and to name that. It's a real gift to have him as one of our pastors here because of that, as well as many other things that he brings to us. Our situation today is very much like the people of Israel in Judges 10. Christians in America, we have this memory of Christ We have this memory of of the things that God has done in the past. But the question and the challenge for us is, are we walking as Christians day by day or simply holding on to some nostalgic past? And I think that many Christians, like the people of Israel, have lost confidence in God, lost confidence that God is who he says he is and that he's going to return, that he's going to bring his kingdom in his time and in his way. And so we've come to believe that the problems of the world are really up to us to solve. We've lost confidence and we've become um, what one author calls practical atheists. This is a professor of mine when I was in Vancouver, a Canadian named Craig Gay. And he wrote a book called The Way of the Modern World or Why It's Tempting to Live as if God Doesn't Exist. And in this book, he talks about how Western Christians in many ways are practical atheists. And by that, what he means is that we believe in our heads that God exists. We believe that he is real. We may even believe that he rescued us and saved us from sin and death and has a wonderful and glorious future for us. But when it comes to our day-to-day lives, the way that we interact with money, the way that we interact with our neighbors, the way that we interact with politics, the way that we interact with our families, we sometimes function as if God doesn't exist. We believe in our minds and confess with our mouths that God is God, that he is in control, that he is all-powerful, that he can do all things, that he is going to bring his purposes in the world. But at the very same time, we live as if none of that is true. And we're anxious because we don't believe that's true. And so here's the politics part. (laughs) This is not a political statement. This is really to challenge us to think about how we engage in our hearts and minds about the political arena around us. Because I think that Christians in America have very much become practical atheists when it comes to the political arena. I'm going to throw up a quote up here. And I've intentionally not told you who said it. This is a political figure in our country, and I want to suggest to you that this quote could have come from the political right or the political left. Okay? Here's what it says. It says this. We've been playing t-ball for half a century while they are playing hardball and cheating, right? We've turned the other cheek, and I understand the biblical reference. I understand the mentality But it's gotten us nothing. Okay? It's gotten us nothing. While we've ceded ground in every major institution in our country. My purpose here is not to criticize this particular political figure. But to point out what I think should be plain and uncontroversial. That this is not a Christian way of thinking about things. 
And yet, it seems to me that this way of thinking is the way that most of us have come to think about our politics. That this view of politics, even by Christians, that politics must be practiced ruthlessly and mercilessly, and that the ends justify the means, and that following the words of Jesus are really just for suckers. God isn't going to intervene, so we've got to do something here. We've got to step in and rescue us and take matters into our own hands. I'm not in any way suggesting that we should have some sort of apathy towards politics or government to throw up our hands or to, to lack conviction about things that, are, that really matter. What I'm saying is that we need to engage these things, engage these conversations, engage our political activity and our other activism in the world in a way that demonstrates trust and faith that God is in control. That we don't need to act out of fear or anxiety. That we can engage in our political discussions and our political activity in ways that honors God and that loves our neighbor. That we can engage in politics in such a way that those who disagree with me on some matter isn't a demon. He's a person. And I'm talking to myself as much as anyone. This fall, the midterm elections are coming up, and this is practice for you for 2024, which is no doubt going to be a doozy. And I'm already asking myself, what's going to motivate me in my conversations with others about this? Where is my heart? Where am I anxious? Am I willing to listen to the perspective of others that disagree with me, especially my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially them, to see those disagreements, especially with our brothers in Christ, as an opportunity to learn and to grow, rather than to see that as a threat to what I presume is the only right way to see things? Am I willing to lean into the thoughts and ideas of other people, again, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, and to ask what hurts and frustrations are motivating them to think the way that they're thinking? I don't understand that thing. Can you tell me how you've been hurt or what you're frustrated with about our situation so that I can understand where you're coming from? And even at the end of the day, I don't agree with that. At least I now understand your own hurt, and your own heart. This is an opportunity for us. But instead, we kind of stand across the battlefield, you know, lodging stones at one another. One of our expressions of syncretism is that we've lost the confidence that God is going to bring his kingdom in his way and in his time. We've lost confidence that our faithful walk with Jesus, our daily obedience to him, our quiet and hidden loving of our neighbor— It really is enough. God is at work calling men and women into every area of life to be salt and light there. In business and in politics and in media and in social work and in our schools. He is at work calling us and he sends us there to be salt and light. To be yeast in a batch of dough in those places. But if we're not distinct... If we are not acting in those places differently than the world around us, then we have lost our saltiness. We have lost our light, and we're not going to be yeast. We won't change anything at all. And friends, we also have the confidence that in the end, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to make everything right, and we can trust that. 
we can engage in a faithful, Christ-like way. If we don't engage in a Christ-like way, we may win some battles along the way, but we're going to lose the war. Jephthah, he won some battles for Israel, but he lost. He lost future generations, and he lost the unity that God desired for Israel. Like Israel, in our own syncretism, in addition to being practical atheists and believing that we need to take matters into our own hands, we're also in danger of losing the vision that God is king of the universe. And we also tend to make God useful to us. In our own personal lives, we often try to fit God into our story rather than asking how we fit into God's story. We have our own personal dreams to fulfill, and we believe that if we do the right things, if we say the right prayers, then God can play his part and fit in our story. He'll be useful to us to gain what we really want. But the calling of the follower of Jesus is to find out how our lives fit into the plans and purposes of God, not the other way around. In what way can I be useful to God to bring about his purposes today? How is God calling me to use the gifts and the skills that I have to bring about his goodness and his justice and his peace and his protection for the vulnerable, his charity, his care for the hurting? How can I be useful to God to bring about his purposes? Not how can I figure out how God can be useful for mine? Our syncretism lowers God to a place in our minds, in our hearts, to where we make him useful to fulfill our dreams. But God is not useful. He is the I am. He is the king. He is the end goal of our lives, not the means to help us attain some other goal. So last today is just want to talk about the results of syncretism that we see. The results of syncretism first is tribalism and civil war. Judges chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Jephthah called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gilead struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, Let me cross over... The men of Gilead asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if he replied, No, they said, All right, say Shiboleth. And if he said Siboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. I really wanted to preach one sermon on these three verses. Have sense to it. This is the second instance of civil war here in the life of Israel. I think this is a fascinating story and I think reflects so much of what's happening in our own American Christianity today. When Israel stops seeing God as the Lord over all, the deliverer and savior of Israel, he becomes in their minds a God to help them further the purposes of their own tribe. The way that Jephthah leads ends up in this tribalism 
seeking only good for people who are like us and who talk like us. People who say shibboleth in the right way. We have seen for a long time, but especially in the last two years, the way that factions in our churches are formed over issues other than faithfulness to Jesus and the gospel. We've been willing to engage in civil war with our brothers and sisters over masks and vaccines and political opinions. God have mercy. There is a really fierce tribalism that has shown itself in the American church recently that reflects our lack of confidence that God is in control. And it reflects this idea that God is useful to me and my tribe to get us what we want. It's a dangerous thing, and the world is watching. The second result of syncretism is that we lose the next generation. Judges chapter 12, verses 8 through 15. Actually, I'm not going to read it all. Just I'll read the first couple of verses here. It says, After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem led Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan. And for his sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibzan led Israel seven years. And then Ibzan died and he was buried in Bethlehem. And then we have two other accounts of different leaders in Israel who had so many children, so many grandchildren. Why is this here after the story of Jephthah? Because Jephthah didn't have any descendants. Jephthah lost his future generations because of his vow and because of his misunderstanding of who God is. When we act like Jephthah, we lose the next generation. Syncretism and tribalism causes us to be short-sighted, fighting battles for our own tribe while we forget the battle belongs to the Lord and he is king over the whole universe. He will bring about his plans and purposes. And friends, we are seeing the loss of a generation. Those who are my age and younger who are fleeing the church. And there are a thousand one reasons for this. Some of them really ugly and selfish, but some really honest and true. That require us to take a look in the mirror. Because one of the main reasons that many of them are leaving the church, and I know this both from research as well as from conversations with many, many of them, that they're walking away because they believe that the church itself has abandoned Jesus and his call. When we lose the vision of God as Lord over all things, when we lose confidence in his sovereign plan to work out all things, We take matters into our own hands. We do things our own way, and we make God useful to our own ends. And these things lead to tribalism, civil war, and the loss of a generation. I want to finish with a word of hope. And it comes again from Leslie Newbegin. Let me see if we can get to his quote. He was once asked by someone whether he was pessimistic or optimistic about the future of the church. And this is what he said. I believe in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
concerning a program, one may be pessimistic or optimistic, but about a fact, we can neither be optimistic or pessimistic. We simply believe or disbelieve. Isn't that a good word? About a fact, we cannot be optimistic or pessimistic. We simply believe or disbelieve. Now, this may seem like a bit of a snooty reply. (laughs) But in his response, Newbegin puts his finger on our practical atheism and our habit of trying to fit God into the story of the world that we think should be written. The question that they were asking was whether the programs of the church or the structures and institutions of what was thought to be a Christian culture would remain in place and grow in the future. And Newbegin's response is a reminder that the church is not dependent on our own work or effort or cleverness. God's future for the world is not dependent on our strategies or our activism. God's preservation of his church and God's plans for the future of the world are safe and inevitable because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus is alive. His spirit is among his people. And as he said, when he builds his church, the gates of hell will not overcome it. When who builds his church? When he builds his church. Brothers and sisters, your faithfulness is enough. Your daily life of obedience is enough. Your prayers offered for the hurt of the world is enough. Your quiet love for your neighbor, your visiting the poor, your care for orphans and widows, your casseroles for the sick, your faithfulness in the way that you live out the way of Jesus in your neighborhood and your workplace, in whatever area God has called you to, it is enough. I heard a story this week. I'm going to embarrass her. But it makes me want to cry right now. Ruth Small needed a new car. And she told her small group that as long as my car has room in the back seat for Linda's walker, that's all that I need. Friends, that is, that is the heart that is enough. That is the salt and the light and the yeast in a batch of dough. That is our calling. Alan has often said at his work in his his much that he's not called to fix people. I'm called to be obedient. Our world has lots and lots of problems, lots of them. And our faithful obedience really is enough. Love God, love your neighbor, and God will surely do the rest. And when the world is shaken and shifted as it is right now, he will still be there. And he'll be holding us in his hands. We can trust him. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Amen. Amen. Lord, I pray that we would receive these words today as hope for us. As hope that you are who you say you are and that you have shown yourself in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, Lord, may we receive that fact. May we receive that fact as the place that we stand. Amen.